You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 113. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How are you doing? Good, good. Just getting ready for the holidays, leave here in a couple days. How's life with number two? You know, it's great. It's crazy, but it's fun and uh, looking forward to the holidays uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to, to everybody out there. Thanks for listening to the show. Last week, we had a really good interview, really good story, inspiring story, motivational, uh, very, very inspirational with A.J. Osborne. Super interesting episode. He has a great story, net worth about 15 to 20 million. We split the difference and called it 17.5 last week. He's primarily invested in self-storage, but also dabbles in other companies on the side uh, and, and shared his story about being completely disabled and on life support and turning that around. So really an inspiring and, and humbling story from AJ. Happy that we could have him on the show. Uh, and then today we have a special episode, right, Jace? We're going to look at it. We had a, a privilege of looking at a billionaire's balance sheet, so couldn't get the person to come on the show, but just going to talk about a little bit about that and, and divulge kind of how they're invested. So interesting episode today, I think people will find. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital. They keep the show going, so appreciative to them. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identifies stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come from investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. We're appreciative to everyone tuning into the show once again. If you enjoy it, we encourage you to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us get the show out there and reach new millionaire interviewees and continue to learn from each of them. Also, we have a sponsorship spot coming up for the new year. Obsidian Capital has been kind enough to support the show and sponsor the podcast for about the last six months or so. But our time with them is winding down here at the new year. And so if you're interested in sponsoring the show or, or, or know somebody who is, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So with all that housekeeping taken care of, Jace, let's let's jump into this billionaire's balance sheet, should we? Yeah, let's do it. You know, one, super cool that, that we had the opportunity to kind of look through this and, uh, you know, at a high level kind of get inside their mind and and kind of get inside their investments. I think a couple things that are that are interesting of note just off the bat is there's definitely a different mindset that goes into accumulation versus preservation. And this particular individual was much more in the preservation phase than the accumulation phase, obviously. Made a majority of, of the wealth in the sale of a, of a business and the cash flow from that business over many, many, many years and is now reinvesting a ton of that liquidity that came in the liquidity event and, and, and also has invested in several uh, things over the years. I think one of the, the most interesting things 
is just in general, kind of the preservation mindset. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of not taking huge risks. Um, you know, if you look at the at the balance sheet in terms of looking at like what would, we would consider private equity or equity holdings in individual companies other than this individual's company, there's just not a lot. And a lot of a lot of the capital and Clark, you can kind of dig into some of the percentages, you know, on, on real estate, personal real estate and, and private equity, but much more in a, in a preservation mode. And I think, you know, we kind of talked to David in, the, in a more recent episode a little bit about that too, that he's in that phase of his life, more or less, right? He's just trying to get, you know, a base return kind of out of that accumulation phase and more in the preservation phase. Yeah. What, I mean, when do you think it shifted, right? Because for somebody to be worth a billion dollars, it's not like they've always been in the preservation stage, right? I mean, no. they've obviously been aggressively accumulating. And so, I think now the person might be in the preservation state stage, but it obviously wasn't all like that. And and the episode also that comes to mind, you mentioned David episode 100, but also David Stein a couple episodes, right? He mentioned, hey, look, I'm happy getting, what did he say, 6% or so, and, yeah. and that he's, he's just looking to accumulate, right? Because he's retired and he's been retired for several years and... And he says, "Look, I'm just trying. I'm, I'm just trying to accumulate." And and I think it's interesting, right? As we interview each of these millionaires, that there's different aspects or dynamics of that, and people are kind of in a different stage of their journey. You know, obviously the younger ones, for the most part, but not always, are willing to take more risk, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes they're not. They just throw everything in the stock market and, and let it sit. And then those that are older or retired are obviously um, much more conservative. And, and willing to preserve the capital a little bit more. And, and obviously that's understandable, right? I think the mindset shifts when you get to about 7 million and, and maybe you're still a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, I think some of it depends on, on stage of life, right? Like you mentioned younger, where somebody is in their career. And then also I think risk tolerance plays into a little bit too, right? Like we've talked to some people who have kind of reached a lot of their goals, gotten to a point where they never thought they might, might get to, and, you know, in terms of accumulation, they're, they're kind of throwing their hands up and said, you know, I don't, I don't want to take that much, you know, that additional risk given my age, given my risk appetite and everything else. Whereas somebody who might be younger has got more runway, more to play with at a younger age might be more willing, you know, and, and I don't know when that shift happened for this individual, obviously. I would imagine that for a long time, especially as, you know, you're building a, you know, a business that's worth that much money. It's accumulation for a very, very long time. Granted, there's a lot of cash flow that that would kick off in a business and the way that the balance sheet's kind of structured kind of reflects some of that because some of these purchases, I would imagine, were 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. It's not like they all just happened in the last year or two years or three years. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump into it just just so people know here. So I'll just kind of breaking down the assets here of the billionaire. So just given rough percentages, about twenty twenty five percent is held in in cash and cash equivalents. So that's you know different accounts could be a checking account, brokerage account, or you know different personal accounts. And then about twenty percent is in in other current uh, assets and, and cash and and that sort of things. That's a little bit different, but mostly brokerage accounts right there. And then private equity investments is about another 15 to 20%. So that could be in small business mainly. And then investments. So that's mainly real estate, both residential and commercial is about 35% of this individual's portfolio. And then a significant amount in hard money lending, right? Private debt comes out to 
I mean, I guess it's a smaller bucket, but also about 10 or 15%. So kind of dabbling in, in private equity, right? Real estate and then hard money lending are kind of the big three. And then obviously holding a bunch of cash and, and probably looking to get that out there and, and get that invested in, in one of those three buckets. Yeah. And I think, you know, you bring up the, the other current assets and just to give people an idea what that looks like brokerage accounts. I mean, there's definitely some bond funds in there. Definitely some conservative type uh, mutual fund type holdings. Very healthy on on the dividend payouts in a bunch of those. Very healthy in the interest payouts on the bonds and stuff. So really just kind of preserving the capital and looking to get particular 6%, 5-6% return uh, on those investments. And then a little bit probably more risky on some of those private equity investments because some of that is quote-unquote direct e- equity you know, the private data, I would guess that a majority of that would be asset back. But if it's not, you know, you're probably getting some pretty good premium on 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 the interest there. You know, Clark, you kind of play a little bit more in this world, but I, I would imagine that there's probably a two points up front, maybe a point, depending on, on when it was made, when those investments were made, and then probably collecting anywhere from 10 to 12% interest on, on those investments as well. So a little bit more risky, but you know, that it's reflected in kind of that that return. Right, right. And then this individual also just on the income side is making a few million dollars a month, right, from each of these. And, and you know, anywhere from, I mean, I guess one of the interesting pieces that we looked at is it's about a $100,000 in bond income a month, right? You know, that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a lot in bond income, obviously, a month. But I guess when the balance sheet's that big, it's what you're getting. Anyway, just kind of a fun thing. We just wanted to share that. Obviously, working to get more people on the on the show that are willing to share these type of things. But just on this, wanted to share that because I think people found it interesting. Certainly, we did as it's on a, a larger scale, obviously. Yeah, and I think I think one other thing too, you know, we, we talk about, and obviously, it's a little bit different as, as you get to these levels of of wealth, but I think the interesting thing too is, you know, he doesn't have a ton tied up in what would we consider personal or residential real estate, literally like less than 10%, which I think traditionally, you know, we've seen that creep up to 20, 25% for the most part for the, for the average millionaire we've kind of interviewed. And, you know, I read an article, I think it was published in 2014 by the Wall Street Journal that kind of gave a breakdown of like the top 1%. And, and at the time, I don't know what that is now, but in terms of net worth, that was seven and a half million, give or take, and and up. And those people had anywhere from about ten to fifteen percent in in a personal residence, and then the next nineteen percent, so would be kind of in the top twenty percent. Those people had between twenty and twenty five percent. So you're looking at people probably worth between two and a half and seven and a half roughly would have about 25% of home equity built up as part of their net worth. Once again, you know, I think it kind of correlates with what we've seen with a lot of our millionaires that they don't have a ton tied up in in a personal residence. Yeah, but also also the crazy thing here is, right, if he's worth a billion dollars, 5% is $50 million. Yeah. Right? I, mean, I mean, that's a lot of personal residence if, if you're looking at 50 and, and, you know, 10%, obviously 100 and it goes up from there, right? But Five percent of of someone's net worth becomes obviously it's a ton of money for personal residences, but true. But they start buying multiple, right? You know, sure, you've got two, three here, four, five there. We do. I mean, you see it in the media a little bit that it's just you know it's even our president's got multiple you know residences. What we would consider like a personal residence, it's not a you know for rent or a commercial type space. And you know, I we see a lot of you know, Hollywood actors and prominent business people and athletes that will have multiple homes. So like, 
even though it might not be in one home, they start accumulating more and more and more on the residential or what would be considered residential real estate, you know, not something that's not generating a return per se in terms of cash flow. It might, you know, an appreciation, uh, you know, if they were to go sell it or whatever. But the reason I, I bring that up too is we talk a lot about on, on this podcast, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and he considers your home a liability. And you look at those personal residences and you don't have income generating, right? So like income coming from other sources has got to cover property taxes, all your utilities, all the bills for all these upkeep for all these homes, right? And the more value you have of your net worth placed in those kinds of things, those bills and everything else are going to kind of eat up some of that cash flow. Yeah. But but at the same time, it's kind of interesting, right? Because you could easily go sell your I mean, not easily, but let's just say, you know, you recently did it, right? You turn your main, your main primary residence into a rental, right? When you move. Yep. And then all of a sudden it just flips, right? From yep, a, a liability totally. to an asset. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I see his take. It, it, it takes money and it costs money and you can't, you're not earning money, but it's something that could be flipped in a month, in, you know, weeks yeah, to totally. income on the other side. You say, is that really a liability? Totally, but I don't totally. know. I, I go back and forth on it. But it's interesting as we as we as we talk about percentages of primary residence or personal residences or real estate, personal real estate as as a percentage of one's net worth. We kind of talked a little bit before the show about these myths that people think about millionaires, and even you know Dave Ramsey does his millionaire theme hour. He often talks about the myths, right? That people think and. And I think he helps perpetuate it a little bit, right? I think some of the myths that he comes up with, I don't think they're really, I mean, one that he always talks on is, oh, you can't be a millionaire anymore, right? Mm -hmm, I think that's mm -hmm. something he always shares. And I think you and I kind of joke about it because we're like, do people actually think that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, how many, obviously some do, but I, I think anybody who's financially savvy and, and as this information is more readily available to people, I think people say, look, it's possible, right? I just have to skimp and save or invest or make a lot of money or whatever, right? But it's doable. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think most people would recognize that. And then does he share that most people don't make a hundred thousand? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think I think that's one of his one of his things is just that you know, I think his message is that it's doable without making it. And I, I can't remember the statistic in Chris Hogan's book, but I, I believe it said that a majority of the ones that they studied do not, which is fairly contrary to what we found with those that we've interviewed, you know, at some point in their life, most of them got to that mark. Not all of them, but a majority of them got to, you know, whether it was household income or individual income or whatever, most of them got to that uh, mark. And, and some of the times it was, they had a salary of like 75 or 80 grand or whatever, but they all, you know, our household salary, but they also had 25 grand coming in from real estate or some other mechanism mm. to kind of get there from what we found which i think yeah or or a, a side gig right yeah coming, or side coming to mind there are those that work in education right they might make 70 80 90 teaching right after they get further along in their career but then they're coaching football on the side for totally. the school and they're making another 10 grand type of thing totally and so i think i think the ones that are millionaires, at least those that we've interviewed now, of course, there are plenty that have not done it this way, like the janitor, yep. right, that we had on our show that he didn't. And so there's plenty out there that, that we just haven't interviewed, obviously. But I think I think most of those that we've interviewed had. But anyway, pretty interesting. So last week, was it last week, Jace, or a couple of weeks ago that we were on AJ Osborne's, it's called Cash Flow to Freedom podcast. And he got into a lot 
of really great questions with us about things that stood out to us, things that were surprising to us from all the people that we've interviewed, kind of some of the trends and the statistics. So if you haven't had a chance, go back and, and listen to that. But just to kind of sum up a couple things, Jace, what's maybe stood out to you as we've done these first, we're about 115 episodes now. What's, is there something that stood out to you or surprised you or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that surprised me is that a majority of these millionaires do not actually budget. They might have at one point in their life, but that's not something that's like a regular practice. I think, especially in the financial world, like a lot of times we get caught up in like, you know, sticking to a budget or like being budget savvy. And there's a lot of tools and options out there to help you do it. But I think what we've found and and from these discussions we've had, and you know, we've had a few people write in asking about some of these things is the majority of them do not actually budget. They're very cognizant of their spending. And I think they all try to, you know, essentially keep themselves in check that way. But that's not something that they're sitting down and, and every single month figuring out like, how do I skimp and save on this because I spent here and I should have spent there or I'm going to push buying off that item because it's not in the budget this month. It's something we've kind of discussed a few times before, but I kind of adopt that that mentality too, that it's just, it's just like too much work to try to like sit there and figure out like pennies here, pennies there. Oh, let me shift here because I really need to cover this for my kid this month versus like, let me push it over there into a different bucket. Oh, let me buy it at the grocery store because then it'll come out of my grocery budget instead of buying it, you know, some other category, right? Yeah. What if it's not pennies though? You know, I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, playing devil's advocate. What if, what if one says, Hey, I don't budget. And then when they, you know, cause you hear stories all the time where people then look at it and they say, gosh, I thought it was just 50 bucks or a hundred bucks that I was eating out. And it turns out it was $600, right? You kind of hear these crazy stories of of people that say that once they actually go down to a budget, they realize how much they could they could be saving. No, I, I mean you bring up a good point, and and I think back to a book that that I've read recently called Atomic Habits by James Clear, and I think some of these habits of spending are like for the most part really ingrained in us. So yes, is it possible that somebody would need to budget who's overspending on eating out or maybe not within the realm that they want? Yeah, totally agree. But I think that's what the the point is. Like a lot of these millionaires have built up quote unquote financial habits to the point that like that muscle has been exercised so many times that they're aware that like, hey, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go spend a hundred bucks a week at grocery store and I'm going to spend 50 bucks a week eating out. And like, that's going to be what it is. And they don't really differ from that because they've built up that habit. They buy similar things. You know, my wife and I recently went to kind of a thing just to make it a little bit easier for us that we kind of have themed days for our meals. So when we go to the grocery store and, and this might drive some people crazy, but for us, it's been great where we have this theme on this, you know, particular day and we might switch, you know, some of the ingredients a little around a little bit, but for the most part, like, we know every single time we're going to the grocery store and buy or what we're picking up at curbside, you know, at, at HEB or whatever. And then we don't have to think about it and we don't have to think about like what the budget around that's going to be at all. Right. Right. I mean, one thing I've done, I, I think it could be helpful and I, maybe I wish I would have done it sooner right, without budgeting is I just, I kind of did a budget at the beginning of the year and said, look, we're making X, right? And we want to spend Y, right? And so if we're going to save this much, we're going to save Z. Okay. That means on a monthly basis, I need to transfer or save X amount, yeah. right? 
And so then I just take that. I just, yeah, I just pull it off the top. Right. And, and I don't, I I frankly don't really care if more goes to food or less goes to food or more goes to, you know, dates or events or or whatever it is, as long as we're saving that number and transferring that number out each paycheck or each month to savings, then I'm, I'm cool with it. Totally. So kind of a a high level budget instead of going in individual, but I, I agree. That's, it's an interesting point that, that we've come across. So anyway, we'll try and share these little tips from, from time to time and, and working on kind of aggregating some of this data and putting it together and, and give a little bit more interesting big picture of, of some of the professions. But we have some cool things coming up with the show. We have a firefighter that we just uh, interviewed that works in a, a, a big city here in the U.S., and he, he's got a great interview. He started income about thirty five to 40000 and now he's built his net worth up to about one point five. So some fun, interesting, fun and interesting episodes coming up uh, for the new year. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, we're gonna have our new our new website up with a bunch of these interviews online. And if some of you have asked for for that, and uh, you know, we got a lot of great things. We're gonna have uh, some reappearances now that we've been kind of two years into this. We're gonna have some millionaires come back on and we'll kind of dive in and get a little update on their portfolio as well. If there's a favorite millionaire out there that you'd love to have, you know, kind of update on. Let us know, and we'll try to try to bring them back. We've got a couple that we've, you know, in the pipeline already that, that we'll share here shortly that that'll be pretty exciting. And you know, this, the, the show's really starting to kind of get, get the legs of, of where the vision was when we started it. And, uh, you know, I just going into this new year, I'm just really appreciative of, of all our listeners and sponsors and everybody that's kind of made this kind of come to life. It's been super exciting journey for, for Clark and myself to kind of see everything that we kind of thought about, you know, I guess almost three years ago when we started this kind of, kind of take shape and kind of really form into, to what it is today. Yeah, totally. It's been about two years, right? Since we've started this and and kind of been talking about it a long time before that we should have the, uh, Jander on again. I think he was a a popular episode. So if anybody, yeah, if anybody has any questions, they'd like us to ask him, um, then, then please write us email is millionaires unveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to do that. We'd love any listeners that write and have questions, you know, I, I think sometimes we're, we're, we're doing, we're trying to make a better job of mixing it up, asking new questions, new topics, you know, trying to pick these people's brains and, and hopefully we can find somebody that everybody connects to. So with that, happy holidays to everybody. Happy new year. And we'll catch you on next week's show of, of Millionaires Unveiled. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.